Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we discuss RPG ideas, compare rules, establish sacred cows, fight about what's best, kill the cows, and generally geek out over our favorite games. I'm Brandis Stoddard. And I'm Sam Dillon. And in this, our second episode, we are finishing up our discussion about two-hit rolls and armor class, and we're going to talk a little bit more about third edition, and then we're going to delve into fourth and fifth edition. Ah! Hey, it's me, Snurg! I don't really like Noble Knights that much, but NobleKnight.com is okay by me. You know why? They got tons of products for me where I can just be hiding in dungeons and stuff like that. Also, it's it's really, really cool. I get to find all these bestiaries that I can fill my dungeon with and all kinds of goblin miniatures. So check out Noble Knight. They'll even buy old gaming products that you aren't using anymore, and they're awesome. NobleKnight.com. Make sure you tell them the Tome Show sent you. So, Brandis, we ended our last episode with, we kind of covered 3rd edition, but it's so big. Is there anything you want to say about 3rd edition to to bring us back to where we were? Thinking about what I wanted to say about 4th edition reminded me of something that we need to say about 3rd edition, because it's going to wind up being relevant in understanding exactly how and why bounded accuracy works the way it does. So, let me circle back and point out the way ability scores are affecting attack accuracy, right? So it's always been true in D&D that ability scores have a base range of 3 to 18, and it may or may not be possible to push above 18. It varies by edition, and how you might do that varies by edition. Anyway, 3rd edition was the first edition of... Ability score improvement as a native part of level advancement. Your ability scores just go up at certain points. It's been a long time since I've looked at third, but I believe that was fourth, eighth, twelfth, sixteenth, twentieth, and so on. And you were getting plus one to an ability score at those levels. Yep, I think you're right. I think it was every four levels. In previous editions, what that means is the only way your attributes could go up or down is either magic, so a potion or wish spell or something like that, or for them to go down, you could actually uh, encounter a creature that would drain your wisdom, for example, and that score would go down, or drain your constitution, and that score would go down. And those things generally didn't recover, so you would have to use magical means to get them back up to their previous level. Right, and I don't want to get sidetracked on the full deep dive of ability scores because that's stealing from a future show. What I just want to say about that is that in 3rd edition there's no upper bound on ability scores and the bonuses have a clear way to scale as high as you can push the ability score. So you've got magic items that grant you a plus 2, plus 4, or plus 6 to a stat and then you've got, within the first 20 levels, 5 points of ability score bonus, just some advancement. Maybe you get a tome that improves an ability score, but let's not count on that. It could happen, who knows. But you're looking at, let's call it a, a base possible plus 11 to an ability score. There are a few other sources of, of improvement that 
you might or might not be able to draw upon. So your your overall possible accuracy depends very highly on your starting ability scores. A starting 18 is just going to be able to go higher than a starting 16 or 15 or wherever you are. And so there's an outsized importance to either good rolls if you're using randomized ability score generation or to racial bonuses to ability scores. And so what winds up happening is that accuracy and spell accuracy, which is to say your your, your spell stat, intelligence, wisdom, or charisma, really, really factors into race design in this sort of odd way. Why a lot of races don't grant bonuses, you, they only grant penalties to casting stats. So there, there's a, a lot of weird nuances that aren't super interesting to explain in detail necessarily, but they, they do matter in the overall design. And this is going to come back up in 4th edition. Right, and, and actually this is this also matters because as we we sort of ended la- the last episode almost on a discussion about the shift in in the game from you know into second edition we talked about Thaco and how as much as that might have been a bugbear of a of a thing to to be saddled with it was still a way for the player themselves to to know what those numbers mean and that actually shifted a huge amount into 3rd edition because 3rd edition is a system that rewards system mastery and the expectations completely flipped. Uh, In the previous editions, you weren't necessarily expected to know all the rules as a player because the games all relied, every previous edition before 3rd relied on a lot of DM fiat and rules adjudication that were in the sacred tomes of, you know, the DM's guide and whatnot. Whereas in third edition, everything's in the player's handbook. And the majority of rules are knowable. And with that comes the expectations that you will know the rules. And when you start knowing the rules, you are able to make a character that can be more focused on a certain subset of tasks that you want that character to be really good at. And knowing that brings us back around to the ability scores once you have your attributes and once you know that if you're going to be a fighter strength is the most important thing to you for these 12 reasons why not just the two hit roll but several feats that might become available and several different advancement opportunities and different prestige class options and all of these things are related to that attribute score you want to start with the highest number possible right that's that's absolutely true the last major area of rules that was ever going to become player-facing, but in 3rd edition is still strictly DM-facing, is magic items. Right. And keeping this DM-facing gets pretty weird, because uh, magic item creation feats become a thing in in 3rd edition, and there's a very real sense that you need to optimize your magic item loadout. It's something that is a huge shift in thought process from editions before it. And it's going to stay true in 4th. It's going to probably be even more true in 4th. And then that idea is going to have 
be set on fire in 5th edition. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And the reason why is because in 4th edition, because they changed the action economy, all of the actions that were available for each characters, each each character type, were different. And because of all the options, each fighter is different from another fighter, which is true in 3rd edition too, don't get me wrong. But the the difference is that all of the powers are slightly different. And they all may mimic each other, and they all may equal out to the same bonuses and whatnot. But the but the things that the powers do are slightly different, and in most cases, the player is going to know that better than the DM even is. So in fourth edition, it kind of finished the flip all the way, and now the players know the rules about how their character works in some cases better than the DMs do. And in fourth, I think there's really very little need for the DMs to even understand how the player's powers work, as long as they understand the verbs and right. nouns and adjectives that are at right. stake. The key, the key words and how a push-pull works, how, how the action economy works, the overall rules, which also the players also understand. So, Well, and everyone needs a pretty subtle understanding of the difference between a ranged attack and a close burst attack, and so on, and, and an area attack. Right. The most asked question about 4th edition Blast and burst. Which one is which? <laughs> yeah, that's the famous question for any new new player or DM. Is like, wait, what's what's happening? Yep, that you need to have a really nuanced understanding of all of those for fourth to work right. That's a different episode, though. That's if it's getting episode. asked that often, it could probably be explained more clearly. But <laughs> right, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, well, future episode, future right, episode. Right. I was gonna say perhaps an unnecessary distinction. You know, they they could have simplified, but anyway, yeah. Let's let's not. <laughs> yeah. Let's not have that episode right now. <laughs> Look, I'm here for armchair design, but we got to end this someday. <laughs> so, really fully bridging into fourth edition, mm-hmm. you once again have the pattern of starting ability score plus bonuses from advancement plus bonus from your level, and then a proficiency bonus from the weapon. That's a bit of a new twist. There's room to have a trade-off between a weapon that does more damage and a weapon that is more accurate. It's you know one point of additional accuracy against uh, one point of average damage most of the time, but there are also weapon special features and feats that key into weapons and so on, so that there's a lot of potential nuance there. But it's a decision you make once and live with for the most part. And how much you how much you really care about that decision at each level seems like it's almost like there's a split between, well, there's the people who really care about optimizing everything and they need to keep up with the required, you know, sort of two hit bonus that would be expected of their level. And then there's the type of player who doesn't really care about the math so much. They just want to get the powers that sound cool and make it them feel like they're doing cool things. And on a one level to one level basis, that's not a big deal. But if five or six levels go by and one player has been completely optimizing everything and one player has just been picking the most cool sounding powers that don't necessarily optimize and don't make their two hit bonus with their particular weapon the highest it can possibly be, by the time five or six levels have gone by, that difference is really obvious at some tables. That's absolutely true. I was at a table that had a 
fair amount of say meta discussion of of character building and character power and in fourth edition more than most i mean accuracy is king because if the attack doesn't hit you do a lot less there are plenty of attacks that still do something on a miss but you are not getting your bang for your buck if the attack doesn't hit there's a couple more things i want to drill down about in fourth edition attack math one of which is a huge, huge shift. In every edition before this one, accuracy on attacks is spreading more and more as you advance so that fighters are the most accurate, rogues and often clerics are a step behind them in accuracy, and wizards are the least accurate. And we explained this in good detail around second edition, but it stayed true in third with the base attack bonus progression. In fourth, everyone's attack bonus is progressing at the same rate, based on their level and their magic items. Right, isn't it like a ha- half their level rounded down, uh, right. plus magic item, plus their attribute bonus or something? Is that That's your basic, what you're doing. Right, and if they're using a weapon attack, they have their proficiency bonus, but if it's a if it's not a weapon attack, if it's an, an implement attack, then they they don't have an accuracy bonus there, and as a result, you are making effect attacks against fortitude, reflex, and will, which are now defenses that that the attacker rolls against, and not saving throws that the defender is rolling to avoid an effect. Yeah, they're not really saving throws anymore. They are defenses. Right. Saving throw is still part of the game. It right. just means something else. Right. And and this is actually a huge change in 4th edition, so probably also another episode. Right. I mean, saving throws is definitely its own topic. It really it really was a huge shift, but it does it makes a difference because that actually affects the two hit, right? Cuz you're now we're not just talking about a two-hit attack bonus or an attack value or a number that can affect only armor class. You know, we, we sort of brought this topic together as we're going to talk about two-hit rolls and attack bonuses and armor class because that's those two things were married from 0th edition through basic to first and second and third and now in fourth. They're married still, but now... There's more there because there's reflex, will, and fortitude that are things that get attacked now. And so now your attack bonus is, it makes a difference now because you might be attacking a different defense than armor class. Right. It's, it's now a much more complex relationship. Everything that we've talked about at this point is paired up against what's going on with AC that we also have to explain in the same level of of care, because AC does work a little differently this time. Not definitionally. In terms of what we we say AC means, it's within the same... within a standard deviation, the same definition. And I think I actually read the definition on the last episode, and it's basically the same. It did not have a, a, a lot of shifting there. Yeah. What's different is that AC is improved in some unusual ways. There's a a new kind of gear treadmill for for AC, where you not only have the armor and its magical bonus, but you've got to get upgraded materials at a couple of different level breakpoints. 
And if you aren't doing that, then your AC is actually falling behind the denominal curve. Right. And now you might think, dear listener, why do we care so much about keeping up? Isn't that just what optimizers do? And here's the answer to that. I'm not generally an optimizer myself. I like to play a cool concept and I'll, I'll play it to role play. And, you know, if my numbers aren't perfect, I don't care. As long as I'm generally in the ballpark, I'm not going to notice a difference of plus or minus two. Except in fourth edition, the entire system was built upon an intricate balance. And one of the design goals was to get something, to create a system where all of the classes can be balanced, all the races can be balanced, everything can be balanced against each other, and every type of character at every level can all be equally as effective with very little finagling. Now, that last part, whether they were actually successful at that last thing or not, is questionable. But for sure, it is the most balanced edition. And it's kind of a different topic to talk about whether or not that's a good thing. So I'll leave that off to the side because that's 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 sort of it's that's actually a different episode. But the fact of the matter remains, that means that because the system relies on balance, we have to care about our abilities being on par with our teammates' abilities. Well, on one hand, being on par with the teammates' abilities, thats you can feel however you want about that, but you have to keep up with the monsters. Right, sure, yes. And their, their AC that you're attacking and their other three defenses that you're attacking do matter. And your AC and defenses that are set up against their attack bonus... Matter. Right. Right, exactly. And it, sort of the all the different monster types have different starting points for their attack bonus and all of their defenses and their damage and so on. And those scale in their different ways across the, the different monster types. And so that brings me to really getting to talk about the, the one bug that made it into production, let's say, of a fourth edition, where so so fourth edition is broken into fundamentally heroic tier, paragon tier, and epic tier. And this is first to tenth, eleventh to twentieth, and twenty-first to thirtieth level. And about midway through each tier, the best po- the best attack bonus you can have fell behind monster defenses by one point. So you're starting at a nominal parity at, at first level, or, or whatever parity means at first level, right? Right. And then you're you're falling behind level over level. Now, on one hand, you can say that you are balancing that out by all of the different ways that powers grant attack bonuses and combat advantage and all of the other things that powers have that are going on. I mean, your party has a leader because, Lord, don't play 4th edition without a leader on the team. <laughs> I mean, as you're picking characters, it's defender and then leader and then the rest of the team. Who cares? <laughs> so you, you can hope that attack bonuses are going to balance that out, but those attack bonuses are really supposed to be giving you the edge, not getting you back to parity right. for the most part. And 4th edition isn't really set up so that you are trying to use a bunch of powers just to either lower enemy defenses or improve your attack bonus so that you can then start throwing out the bigger effects. That's how 13th Age does it, and it's interesting, but that's not what 4th edition is trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so in the Player's Handbook 2, there are are feats called weapon expertise and implement expertise that are intended to solve this problem, but that's what we call a feat tax. Right. 
got to pick up the feet just to fix the math. Well, come on now. Right. Which is unfair to the player, right? Because what if you didn't care about that? See that, and that's where when I talk about you know a, a player not being an optimizer and not caring about the math so much when they're picking their awesome powers that they earned this level. If that happens too much, by the time they get into mid-Paragon, they're so far behind, they're really ineffectual as a member of the team while there is an important situation, interaction going on, whether it's a combat or not. Yeah, exactly. I think that 4th edition does really punish sort of taking our eye off of a certain level of system mastery. You don't have to go crazy deep, but if you don't have a basic understanding of what's happening and why, I do think you sort of get left behind, and that's a very unfortunate aspect of how it all comes together. Yeah. And I don't think it was intended. I think the math, there were some errors, let's just say, and there was an explosion of different feats and different abilities and whatnot. And I think that for whatever reason that that math occurred and uh, well, uh, it wasn't on purpose. It was a flaw in the design that, that showed up that wasn't noticeable until the game was already released and everyone was playing it. And, you know, I agree with that. Another notable thing, magic items that improve your ability scores that are such a big thing in 3rd edition are completely gone in 4th. That's just not a thing at all. And so what that means is that all you've got improving your ability scores are your advancements from from picking up levels. And with only your sort of starting stats and advancement points making up your ability score equation, well, both of those factors matter a lot. Right. I think that it really curtails your freedom to improve your lower ability scores, even though it's now split into, I think you get plus one to two different stats. Right. So it kind of is saying, we'll put one point in your attack stat and one point kind of wherever and that yeah. that more or less De- works depending yeah yeah uh, put one in put one in strength and one in con right or put one in wisdom and one in con or put right. one in <laughs> right or uh, one in dexterity and well one in con or you know one one in <laughs> it's worth saying that most classes and possible builds have a primary stat and a, stat and a secondary stat yeah so you're probably improving your secondary stat a lot well, depends on your power choice. For sure. And again, we're getting into how much you have to optimize in fourth. And I was coming from a very optimization-friendly crowd. So, you know, I can't speak to what everyone's fourth edition experience was. But in in the optimization-friendly community I was part of, I think we really felt that the approach to this class has multiple secondary stat options was a... a bit of a, well, pick one and stick with it. So you're really only picking from a much shorter list of powers when you pick new attack powers, right? Because you've got to be hitting that same secondary stat. It's the only one you've been improving. Right. And so this all sort of comes together. Yeah, the, the game doesn't really work well from the player perspective if you decide halfway through your character's lifespan that the new source book came out and you just found this power you really, really want to have because it sounds so awesome, 
but it actually keys off of one of your possible secondary power, uh, secondary attributes that you haven't really been increasing. Right. So now forget it. You either you either don't get to use that power or or you talk to the gym and rebuild from scratch, which is okay, but I guess, but yeah. that doesn't feel great. That's not yeah, that's not great. It's not a great resolution. So, I think that is is the meat of what I want to say about fourth. I mean, I've I've touched on the fact that a lot of attack powers either grant bonuses to hit or penalties to enemy defense, just like a lot of monsters do something to get a bonus to hit or penalize your defense in some way to improve the chances of landing attacks for real. And so there's a lot of potential fiddly math there. and Which I think actually is one of the reasons why such a, a large flaw got through, right? I, I think that's probably fair. Let's hop over to 5th uh, edition then. I, I could say a ton about 4th edition. I actually love the game. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of 4th edition. I, I think I'm a, a sort of a rare breed because I was a huge fan of basic D&D and 1st and edition. And, uh, and, then my, and then my second favorite is, is probably 4th. Although 5th is edging up there. The more I play it, the, the better it feels. So I, I could talk about 4th edition for hours and hours. I mean, we were definitely huge, huge fans of 4th when it was the active edition. And then we hit some burnout and moved over to Mage the Awakening. And then when D&D Next came around, we were excited for that. And I'm firmly in the camp of, you know what? Fifth edition is, for me, the best edition yet published. I'm I'm loving it right now. It'd be tough for me to go back to fourth at this point because the math is as fiddly as it is. And I feel like there's a lot of start and stop involved in, hey, do you remember that additional plus one? that because you're in this aura from my shaman's you know bear companion or whatever right right right. yep um yeah but see i feel like third edition had a lot of fiddly bonuses dude i am not letting third off the hook yeah no sir yeah no no no, i know i'm just i'm just saying that you know that uh i think i think fourth edition has a lot of drawbacks but i think a lot of the drawbacks that were brought into fourth edition are just the very similar drawbacks to what all the previous editions had in certain ways. I think that's fair. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that, if I segue here really smoothly, that's probably one of the reasons, actually, that fifth edition is the way it is, that it incorporates certain small modular pieces from the different editions, and they playtested it with enough people and designed it over a long enough span of time that they were able to actually determine what works and what doesn't work versus playtesting with the small insular group of people and not being able to test every single thing before it's released and and find the flaws in it. I think that 5th edition was very, very well playtested and, and very well looked at and designed before the actual release of the game. Right. I mean, we were we were deep into D&D Next playtesting. I mean, the campaign I am running now started in D&D Next and just mm-hmm. kept up converting to each new packet and then up converted to 5th when 5th actually came out. You know, that's that's what we've been doing the whole time. Yep. So, so here we are in 5th edition and there are some some key lessons that they seem to have learned from problems I've gotten to touch on in this episode that are not a thing in fifth. You know, 
in 5th edition, everyone's accuracy scales in the same way, thanks to proficiency bonuses being a, a universal thing. The fighter is not inherently more accurate than the rogue, outside of the archery fighting style. Right. And well, But basically, outside of, of, of a couple of edge cases, right. bounded accuracy keeps it so that you have a small numbers... And everyone ha- has the same, they're dealing with the same set of small numbers. And every class increases their basic proficiency at the same time. Uh, right. So part of, the f- part of bounded accuracy, uh, we need to explain what bounded accuracy really is. Yes. It, it's, a, it's a term of work for you and me, but for our audience, it's the understanding that the D20 only has 20 possible outcomes, and this attack can't possibly succeed, and this attack can't possibly fail aren't interesting, right? Well, or at least yes. they're, they're much less interesting in themselves. And so by by bounding accuracy, there's to say, you can only get so likely to hit or find it so difficult to hit, right? AC doesn't scale off the charts. Attack bonuses don't scale off the charts. That They stay within a certain range of each other. That means that things stay interesting for longer. So if we give, if we give some solid numbers, for those of you maybe who never played 4th edition, if I'm looking at 4th edition... I might have a a creature that's part of a battle, and its armor class might be 48. And what that means is I have to roll a 20. If their armor class is 48 and I roll a 20, that means I need a 28 more. So I have to have a bonus of at least 28. So my bonus has to be larger than the D20, which is insane, right? And these numbers, I'm you know that number I'm flying. I'm not you know I'm not just making up a number. There there are creatures with the 48 AC. Oh, for sure. There are creatures with a 30 AC. There are creatures with a 27 AC, and you're trying to hit it at, at you know third level. Exactly. And there's a, a very real sense that you're only able to get an interesting fight out of monsters in a level band of plus four, you know, plus four minus four, plus five minus five. Right. Set it how you want, but a fairly tight level band from wherever you are right now. In the 5th edition bounded accuracy environment, setting aside the fact that it's a 1 to 20 game rather than a 1 to 30 game, a, a large number of, of low level creatures stays a real threat until quite late in the game. Right, right. Sure, your, your, your fireballs and your cloud kills are going to really, really clean up. That's fine. That's fine. But massed archery fire from a bunch of weenies is a really good way to threaten even a pretty high-level party, because while monsters are not going to hit as often, because ACs are going to mean they need to roll, let's say, 17-plus to to land a hit, large number theory teaches us that they're going to get hit a lot if archery fire is sufficiently masked. If the creature needs to only roll like a 17 or better because it's 20 or 30 regular old goblins with regular old short bows firing against a high-level party, well, sure, a lot of their attacks are going to miss, but enough of them are going to hit before you can destroy all of them that it's still going to be a bad problem. And, and keeping creatures interesting for a longer span of levels is a, a huge benefit of bounded accuracy. Another piece of that is that Ability scores have caps. There are very few ways, though there are a few, there are very few ways to push ability scores above 20. 
And what this means is that the importance of your starting ability score is still there, but it's way reduced from what it was in 3rd and 4th. Someone who starts with a 16 in their main stat as opposed to an 18 in their main stat isn't two points behind for their whole career. They might be a feat behind for their whole career because you're spending either an ability score increase or a feat, but at least you can catch up and have that 20. And the game in 5th edition is not reliant on feats to make you effective. Uh, Agreed. Agreed. It's possible to make, you know, because of the way that, that, but that's by design. It's not that they've designed crappy feats. It's that they designed it so that feats, you're making a choice. You either increase your ability score or you get a feat. And so the feat is sort of a package. It's not just a plus one bonus in one single situation or something. It's a it's a package of abilities that you get. And it's meant to be useful for the long term in small ways versus an ability score that will affect everything that has to do with that ability score for the long term. So it's it's meant to have a little bit of equalness there. And it's a tough choice sometimes whether you increase your ability score versus get a feat. But there, I know groups that have played games, and they just don't use feats. They just play with ability score increases and, and everything else. I think that they're incredibly well designed for making those some thorny choices. Right, right. So I want to go back before we move too, too far beyond this, but I also want to mention that, you know, so we, the, the reason that we picked the two-hit attack roll and armor class as the first topic is that it is one of the main components of the game through every edition. It's what's one of the mainstays, right? You can't take two hit rolls and armor class away and still be playing D&D. And so so he, here's why I'm saying that, because in 4th edition, because you had situations where you could have minions in there because of the minion rules, and you could, theoretically, a fighter could face 10 or 15 minions around them and still survive with no problem, or maybe with a, just a tiny bit of problem. That's a very different scenario than in 5th edition, where if a fighter gets surrounded by 15 little minion-y type goblins... Even if the, even if we were to sort of homebrew the rules and and make those goblins only have one hit point, the fact that there's 15 of those is going to really push on that that PC. And so what that does is it forces a difference in gameplay because if you look over the the the, the wall or the cliff or the edge or you're looking down the beach or across the hill or whatever, and you see a horde of 40 goblins, you don't just run out and meet them in battle in fifth edition. You have to plan, you have to figure out how you can maybe get around them, how you can use some stealth, maybe you want to use some diplomacy. You're not necessarily just looking at your two-hit roll and saying, let's see, let me me do some math. Where is my best place to go where I can attack the most of these and have the best accuracy because of my stats? And that is something that you might do in 4th edition. You might say, okay, well, I know the game is balanced, so I know that we are expected, if, if we play skillfully, to be able to succeed at this challenge. And this challenge is 50 goblins on the other hill, and I need to run at them, and I need to make sure I have the best positioning, and I utilize the best of my abilities. In 5th edition, you don't do that, because you will be slaughtered. You can be 12th level, and they can all be little teeny tiny, you know, armor class 9 goblins, and they will still do some damage to you. You might not survive. Uh, right, I definitely agree with that. The The inverse case in 5th edition is one of the the things that I do still hear is significant criticisms of the edition. So I want to call it out real quick. Solo monsters in 5th edition are not the greatest idea because their ACs don't scale incredibly high. They don't scale to be punishingly hard to hit. And their hit points 
aren't leaps and bounds beyond comparable monsters. They've got legendary actions, and that's great, and they've got legendary resistances, and that's great, all for it, but they aren't they aren't leaps and bounds better than a non-solo monster of the same CR. There's not a concept of normal elite solo like you have in 4th edition uh, monster design. So if you're expecting the the Death Knight or the Dragon or whatever to stand up on its own against 4 to 6 PCs, you're probably going to be disappointed as a DM. That's not really how the edition works. Uh, There need to be some ads, and that is a super hard lesson because it doesn't necessarily match what the fiction wants. Right. And so, you know, this is where... This is one of those cases where some of the criticisms leveled at fourth edition, you know, the things, some of the things that fourth edition did were there for a reason. They were designed that way. And it, it specifically was so that you could have mass battles with a, a small party, four to five PCs, and a huge amount of creatures in the combat, plus terrain effects and different environmental things going on. And, you know, it's not that you couldn't have those things in other editions, but you know, for example, in the very early editions, the way you did that was you broke out your miniatures and you played a miniature war game to simulate the war that was actually happening in the in the game. And then when that was over, you got the results and then you went back to playing your single PC. Sure. You, there, were, there really wasn't a set of rules inside the game to let you do that. You had to step out of the game, play a different kind of game, but within the same overall sort of umbrella view of how the world works. If you wanted to actually play a war, you played a war game and finished the war, finished that battle, and then you went back. You only played single characters as one-on-one entities. And if you ran across a horde and you didn't want to run that other combat simulation kind of thing, you you didn't do it. You you found a way around it. You found a way to use diplomacy or you found a way to use intrigue or you found a way to sneak through or around the group and then make them turn away on their own rather than fighting the battle. Well, there's one rule I want to call out from OD&D that is a bit of a countervailing concept, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that if you are fighting creatures that have less than one hit die and you're a fighter, you make a number of attacks equal to your level rather than Mm -hmm. one attack. So you do get to cleave through some kinds of mooks in just a horrifying shower of blood right. violence, right? Right. Where Where is that, though? Is that in uh, first edition? I, I, I want to say it's in OD&D. Okay. Uh, we're talking about edition I haven't played, so I, I'm only pretty sure that this is not Naspol, but yeah. I'm trying to remember. I know that exists somewhere. I can't remember where. But that still is talking about, you know... I'm I, what I'm talking about is humongous battles. Oh, for sure, for sure. And that's sort of that is that kind of sounds like it's the same thing, but I'm not sure that that's that's the way that that was actually played. Uh, at least in my groups, we never played it that way. But yeah, I mean, I, I, so I don't I, I don't want to try to purport something I don't actually know. So we never played it that way. If we actually were going to do some kind of mass battle, we pulled out the mass battle rules that were separate from the <laughs> separate from the game. And then we went back to the actual D&D part later on. Sure. Or, you know, later on in, in Beck Me, when they came out with the companion box, they did have some mass combat rules in there. But once again, then you it, it sort of abstracts things out, and you're, you're dealing with a different system in order to do those things that uh, is different from a one-on-one sort of player PC creature interaction that we have in the more modern editions of the game. 
So I think I sidetracked us more than helping with the discussion. But my, my point of it all was that 5th edition has a very specific way to do things, and it works really well in small groups and in small battles, as small skirmishes. But if the you're right, if the party if if the party number, the party size and the creature size in terms of size of the group, number of combatants isn't really close, if you have some a few bad dice rolls, you can actually swing that thing really wildly if those numbers aren't the same. You know, if you have five characters and you're going against seven kobolds, you're probably okay. You got four characters going against eight kobolds, you have a couple of bad dice rolls, you might have a TPK. Could happen. And in 4th edition, that would not happen. Not just because the characters are hardy. I know some people are like, oh, it was so hard to kill characters there. No, but that was by design because you're meant to be able to withstand huge onslaughts by design. Yep, yep. It, the, there's a very different tone fundamentally to 4th and 5th, No, but no question about it. And, I mean, one of the reasons that I am such a fan of 5th is that it is the tone I was looking for, right? It, it, it has the level of heroics, but still, you can be threatened, that is where I wanted to be. And judging by sales numbers, I'm not alone. <laughs> that's true, that's true. So, what other thing do you want to mention about to hit an armor class, if we, if I pull us back to our, I, I you off tracked us, and then I we, I I got us back on track, and then and then I off tracked us, and you got us back on track, and then let, let's uh, let's round it up. What do you think? What's what's your final thoughts about fifth edition? Well, so oh oh, what are we doing? There's a hugely important thing we haven't mentioned about accuracy, advantage and disadvantage. Oh yes. Oh my God, <laughs> uh, it is in competition with bounded accuracy for the most important new mechanical concept in the whole system. I think here. Can I uh, can I interject? Yeah. I go. think bounded accuracy is the most important concept from the player perspective and from the DM perspective. Advantage disadvantage is the most important. I think that's pretty fair. I think that's pretty fair. I think that the amount of labor saving that advantage and disadvantage provide the DM essentially can't be overstated. Right, right. And that's what I mean. It's it's not that players don't care about advantage and disadvantage. It's that it makes my job so much easier. I don't have to remember all of those plus and minus buffs and all that stuff that we that you mentioned earlier about you know the different classes having different abilities and spells and what's going on and when does one end and when does it begin and who knows what. Nobody has to take care of that. Nobody has to worry about it because all you need to do is you either have advantage or disadvantage or nothing. Yep, absolutely agree. And it it just becomes an incredibly important part of the ebb and flow of classes and how everything fits together. Like denying advantage becomes its own kind of mechanic. Don't suffer disadvantage when becomes its own kind of mechanic. But what what actually happens in the math is that advantage and disadvantage are, roughly speaking, worth somewhere between plus four, minus four, or plus, four, plus five, minus five. Mm-hmm. Again, roughly speaking, but it's, it's collapsed into just another role, so that, again, bounded accuracy is preserved. You know, defenses don't need to scale as high if disadvantage is getting thrown around, because it doesn't take much to have a low roll that's going to miss. And and likewise, there aren't really many features at all that grant little floating plus ones or plus twos to attack or AC. That's not a thing. But getting advantage to attacks when you do this, or you know, having a currency you can spend to 
gain advantage or impose disadvantage. That's absolutely a thing. Oh boy, is it. And it can't be spammed because advantage doesn't stack. Yep, super true. Super true. And and it super matters for how it all fits together. You could have five sources of advantage and one source of disadvantage, and you're, what you have is a normal roll. You could have five sources of advantage and five sources of disadvantage. I don't know how you do that, but let's not get bogged down. And what you have is a normal roll. Mm-hmm. And that took took some adjustment for my whole mentality toward the game when I first saw it going on, because I had been playing third and fourth for so long that the nuance of small bonuses and strategically adding up as many benefits as possible was very much what I thought the game was and was supposed to be. And Fifth says, you know what, let's not design to those corner cases. Let's design to what happens in 80% of all cases, maybe 90% of all cases, that can be covered satisfactorily with disadvantage, straight roll, or advantage. Go. Right. And, well, they made a a simple and easy to resolve thing that is perfectly satisfi- satisfactory for the vast majority of cases and when it isn't then okay fine right it's a it's a momentary speed bump and then you're on to the next situation and it's fine right and in fact in a in so I, two things to say about that we can also be really honest and say you know, the number of times that somebody has had advantage and they roll like two threes, <laughs> you know, so even having advantage oh, sure. doesn't, it doesn't mean that they automatically succeed. You know, it, we talk about it averaging out to somewhere between a plus four and a plus five to your roll, but also you're talking about probabilities on a single dice roll. And so if you roll two dice, you know, both of them can come up a one. It just, it happens. It does. And 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 the, the the converse is also true that you can roll with disadvantage and you roll two seventeens and it's like you know it's it's just part of the game that's that's what makes rolling the dice so fun and 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 you get to respond to all of the adverse circumstances that you're now in. It's also it was a hard adjustment for me as well as a fourth edition player. But but the thing is, the one case that is the most striking where they didn't use advantage and disadvantage, they use a plus two. Uh, or minus two uh, effect is cover. Yep. And it is the most annoying thing. So I just house rule that, and I, I end up using just advantage or disadvantage depending on how much cover you know. Okay. You know because it's too much of a pain to worry about the plus two or is it a plus four or is it well who cares yeah, why do we, why do I want to break the stream of the game right like I understand cover can have different amounts but you know I can get into the nitty gritty about a lot of different things. And I choose not to because of the advantage-disadvantage mechanic. So, Sure. For me personally, that becomes sort of the one thing I need to store in my mind, and so uh, it's easy. The one other thing that bounded accuracy and advantage-disadvantage as being so much of the equation does is that, oh man, is Bless a good spell. Can we mm-hmm. talk for a second about how good Bless is in 5th edition? <laughs> Uh, so, so the, the long and the short of it is that three of your buddies, one of whom can be you, add a d4 to their attack roll, 
and their saving throws. As many of those as they make for, for a minute. So, I mean, that is that is so good. It, it, like, you don't just bless their attacks or just bless their saves. So, like, it, it is incredibly potent in in the overall meta to the point that when there are clerics and paladins in the parties I'm running, they tend to sort of feel like, well, my concentration is going to bless. It's cool that I have other spells, <laughs> but my concentration is going to bless because flipping a miss to a hit or flipping a failed save to a passed save is just so big. Mm-hmm. It is so big. The spell would still be good to fewer targets, is what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but getting three targets at a time is enormous. So, like, bless for MVP in every fight. That's, that's and, how we feel and, about it. Yeah, and at higher levels, you get even more. Yeah, if you, if you cast at the higher level slot, I mean, go nuts. You could be getting tons and tons of people, and it's still yeah. a good performer compared to other spells of those higher levels. No right. question. Right. And the thing about Bless is you can actually use it as a narrative lever, because why is whatever divine power you're using in your game blessing this? Sure, sure. Right? And the cleric and the paladin who are spamming Bless spells all the time, are they still pious? Are, are they still in, uh, looked upon with favor by their deity? Or whatever their divine, wherever their divine power source is, right? Because you know, different worlds can have different things going on. But you know, that's a, that's a narrative lever, and because that's such a powerful spell, if you start pressing on that narrative lever, suddenly it gets everybody's attention. Yeah, I would, I would maybe lose some friends over that one. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> You'd have to warn them first, right? I mean, That's for sure. You don't just all of a sudden in combat, ah, you know, bless, bless didn't work this time. You can't, you can't do it that way. That's not what I'm suggesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm just saying that, you know, when you have something that is so awesome, and it yeah. is awesome, then that's, that's actually an opportunity, right? That's yeah, an opportunity. Yeah, I, I feel you. Because there aren't a lot, I mean, I don't want to say they're not, a, there aren't a lot of those, right? There's yeah. not a lot of super duper obvious. This is the thing that is really beneficial every time you use it. Yep. Yep. And so when there are those, then that's that's an opportunity for for all the players and and the DM to to really start thinking about that in terms of the game and what's happening or not. I mean, you know, whatever whatever kind of game you want to play. Right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I I definitely see what you're saying. I think it's a an interesting approach and. I think that you could build some interesting stories around that as long as everyone at the table is on the same page of what what can happen, right? I, I guess I guess what I'm trying to point out is that's very different from fourth edition, right? Oh, for sure. Because for sure, in in fourth edition, there were so many powers that were really good like that. That yep. you know, if I if I try to use some kind of narrative button or some kind of narrative teaser as the DM to try to push the, the players to try to challenge the players or, or push a certain aesthetic onto the game. It's harder to do because they can just pivot to a different power that does the same thing, right? Or basically the same thing. Yeah. And so the, the gameplay is just very different. So in fifth edition, 
the fact that you can point to maybe a handful of spells that have that much of an effect, you can start pushing on that narrative in a way that's very, it's going to have a very different outcome than, than in, in fourth edition. And so that, that simple fact of having just a few spells that really affect the game and specifically just a couple that really affect the two hit ability of a large number of the, of the members of the party that makes a huge difference to the game. So it becomes a lever that the DM can push on as well as the players. Yep, I definitely agree with that. So I think that that brings us to a pretty good point in uh, talking about accuracy and AC in 3rd, uh, 4th, and 5th edition. What do you think, Sam? I think so. I, I, think we, I think we've covered it. I think there's a lot of openness there that we could probably talk for another two hours about. I have one major project I want to talk about here as we as we sign out. So through Tribality, we are running the Seas of Odari Kickstarter. The Seas of Odari book is a setting book for 5th edition that deals with islands and piracy and sailing around and having a great swashbuckling time with a bunch of sorcery on the side. And it is going to be a really good time. Our Kickstarter has funded. We are knocking out stretch goals. We are coming up on 200% funded, and I am super excited to get to work on this with Sean Ellsworth and Mike Long and Colin McLaughlin and a bunch of other great folks from Tribality. And I hope you will check out the Seas of Adari Kickstarter. I'm sure we can put the link in the show notes so that you can look at what we're doing, and I hope you will give us your backing, because we are going to be bringing a lot of awesome stuff this time. With that out of the way, I guess I'll continue with saying that you can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. You can find my blog, Harbinger of Doom, www.brendastoddard.com, and I also write a whole bunch for Tribality. That's tribality.com, and I hope you will... uh, drop by and read my History of the Classes series and all the other stuff that I write about. Right on. And I am Sam Dillon. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DM Samuel, no spaces. And I, my website is rpgmusings.com and I'm all over the Tome Show, as you can hear. And I have tried to been, be more prolific with RPG Musings lately, and to that end, I have actually started a Patreon page for that. You know, I don't have a. I have some things in the pipeline. I don't want to announce because I don't want to, to give too much, too many things away. Just going and looking at the page will uh, would make me happy at this point. You know, I'm not trying to make a living off of this. It's it's my main hobby. Uh, but when I started RPG Musings, I swore and vowed that I was not going to ever charge for anyone seeing content on RPG Musings, and I'm still not going to do that. I won't even put a donate button on that page. If you like what I write and you want to see things a few days early, or if you uh, want to be able to participate in some polls and some contests to win some goodies, become a patron and you will open yourself up to that. And it helps support all the podcasts that I do and gives me some time to edit and pays for my web hosting fees and things like that. It's uh, also the more money that I can make, the better art I will put in my products. You know, I'm, I'm not looking to fund myself. I have a full-time job otherwise, and that's what pays my bills. But I don't make enough to put a lot of really awesome art in my in my stuff, and I would like to start doing that. And that's really the reason 
that I'm making that Patreon. And go by, take a look. If you can spare a buck or two, that'd be awesome. If you can't, hey, I do not uh, have any sort of hard feelings towards you at all. Just keep playing D&D and I will be happy with you. Also, The Tome Show has a Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Please stop by there. And if you can throw a few bucks at us uh, through that venue, we would appreciate that as well. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as you enjoyed the first one. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode number three.